This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us. A recent Barna survey showed that nearly half of young adults who have some kind of ties to Christianity believe that the church cannot answer their questions or spiritual doubts. Why is this happening? And what are the implications if Christians don't address this trend? Well, we're going to get some thoughts on it today from Dr. Doug Potter. He is Assistant Professor of Apologetics and Theology and Director of Doctor of Ministry Program at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And he has written a response to this survey called Five Truths, the Church needs today to engage people's questions. Dr. Potter, great to have you with us. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. It's great to be with you, Janet. Thank well, you so much. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about this Barna survey. What stood out to you about these findings and just the questions themselves? What was your take? Yeah, uh, this, was, was, this was a comprehensive survey. It's not just the United States of America. It was all country, It was several countries about 15,000 people, and it was uh, students that were age uh, 18 through 35. Uh, so it's a pretty comprehensive survey, and um, it surveyed people that had some ties with Christianity, especially growing up, and found that uh, 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 many of them had left uh, the church uh, as a result of their Christian experience and interaction with the world. And this is very, very concerning. Um, it, it had things like 47% of them uh, uh, felt that the church cannot answer their questions uh, and gave them spiritual doubts. Um, and so this, this is just very concerning to us here at Southern Evangelical Seminary. We want to answer people's questions and equip people in the church to ju- do that, just that. And so uh, we, we felt it was very important for us to respond to this and, and to point out areas that the church, people in the church, can uh, be directed to to get uh, answers and help in answering these people's questions. Oh, absolutely. So do you think that they're right that the church can't answer their questions adequately, or is that a faulty view? What, where, where do you think that really the truth really lies when they well, have a survey yeah, of this, people thinking that way? Is that really true? Yeah. Yeah, well, I can speak to my experience. Many in the Church are ill-equipped to answer uh, uh, difficult questions about the Christian faith. Uh, so, you know, certainly some churches are very well-prepared, and some are, are not as well-prepared, and so it's probably a mixed bag. But given the, the scope of this survey, there's probably uh, a lot of pockets within Christian churches today that are just ill-equipped to handle the, these questions that are being asked. Right. Do we have any idea what sorts of questions they want to have answered? Did they get into that at all? Yeah, we, we can tell a little bit by uh, the people's uh, concerns and doubts they had about Christianity as to what is, is not being answered. Um, uh, they, they have uh, such things as the church, uh, looking at the church in terms of uh, uh, the challenge of science that's posed by them. 
so obviously these are questions about science and religion that aren't being answered. Yeah. Um, questions about the problem of evil, uh, especially about human suffering. A lot of the people in the survey cited that as something that they were unable to get satisfactory answers to, and this caused them uh, to, to develop agnostic, agnostic views uh, with regards to religion itself and Christianity in particular. Many of them considered themselves agnostic, uh, atheists. Um, they also looked at the, uh, at the church as being uh, anti-homosexual and very judgmental. Oh, yeah. So the church isn't dealing with, with uh, sexual issues and, and answering you know, why homosexuality is wrong and, and why we're opposed to that. Uh, and, and they just looked at um, the church itself being out of touch with reality. So the church isn't interacting with the culture and what's going on in the culture and therefore they see the church as being irrelevant. Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at some of these uh, survey results, for example, when you mentioned the sexuality issue, it said that 80% of young people who left Christianity said they believe that present-day Christianity is anti-homosexual. 81% say present-day Christianity is judgmental. Do you get a sense that what they really want is they want the church to be more like the world? They don't oh, really, yeah. The ch- yeah. yeah, they don't want the church to be prophetic or actually to bring out the word of God and say this is what God says. They want the church to change. Yes, exactly. And, and a lot of it is, is, is also people just saying, I'm against homosexuality, but th- that is people in the church saying we are against homosexuality, which is good, but not giving the reasons behind it. And when right. people don't have the reasoning that goes behind that, um, they, they see it as being judgmental and they see it as, as, as something that is, is, is condescending and, and they, they turn to the world and, and think that that's an unloving thing, and, and that's just not the case. But when you show the reasons behind it, and you are, do it in an air of love with regards to the fact that homosexuality is a lifestyle or immorality itself is, is, is dangerous, um, it, it's against uh, the human nature of what we are as human beings, um, and, uh, and God has given us guidelines, uh, not only uh, in the Word of God, but also uh, through natural law that we can uh, abide by that would make us good human beings. And, and this is something that needs to be pointed out by the church to answer these kinds of questions. Yeah. Now, you point out in your blog post when you are discussing what the church should do about these results, you have a simple answer, don't you? Truth and disciple-making. Explain what you mean by that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Truth is always what corresponds to reality. And truth is found not only in Scripture, but it's also found outside of Scripture. And, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Paul makes appeal to this in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, that we can know God exists and exists a certain way by appealing to creation itself uh, as coming from, as there being a creator. Um, and so we need to appeal to truth that's outside the Scripture as well. And, of course, when you teach people truth, when you uh, disciple people, um, you cannot do that out of the context of love and caring for people. Uh, Disciple-making must involve love, and so uh, combining these two together are really central. And this is what Christ taught us. Christ taught us with regards to the truth, uh, I am the way, the truth, and life, uh, and and also with regards to the fact that he spent time with people, uh, 12 disciples, three years uh, with them, and uh, taught them uh, from the Scriptures, uh, and also truth uh, that he gave himself through revelation. And these are things we need to do in the church is to uh, be connected with people and to uh, know people and to know their struggles and their difficulties and integrate uh, into their life uh, the truth of Scripture as well as truth found outside of Scriptures in the context 
of a loving discipleship relationship or community. Yeah, that's great. Well, when you talk about the five truths that people in the church need to study in order to answer young people's questions, one of them is the truth about philosophies, truth from philosophy, I should say. And you're not talking about worldly philosophies that we're to reject, but you're talking about philosophy. What should we study? What should we be studying from philosophy that will help us bring truth to bear on on these questions that a lot of these young people have? Yeah, there, there is good uh, philosophy out there, and, and, and uh, the Bible reflects that good philosophy in the, in the pages of Scripture. And the good philosophy is found uh, with regards to what we can do and discover as far as truth outside the Bible. God has made a world, and we can use that world in terms of reasoning about the world to discover truth about God. Paul tells us that we can discover from the world that God is invisible and He is eternal and has invisible attributes, uh, that He has um, uh, always been there and, and never not been there. And these are things that we can reason to apart from Scripture. We don't need to assume God's existence. We can demonstrate God's existence by a formal argument. So studying arguments for the existence of God not only shows that God exists, and this is done through a philosophical reasoning process, but that he must exist in a certain way. Hmm. And so uh, uh, pointing people to this truth that is outside of Scripture is doing philosophy. Well, it is. Do you, do, would you recommend a formal study of philosophy itself or particular philosophers on the part of Christians just to get a better handle on some of the arguments that oh, yeah. they could use? And, yeah, and, and the, the Church is filled with really good philosophers historically, we can go back to the time of Augustine, who uh, used philosophy to argue for the existence. This is all involved in doing philosophy, even right down to today. My mentor, uh, Dr. Norman Geiser, has a slew of books that deal with philosophy and integrating that truth into the Christian faith. And there are many philosophers and apologists today, um, and we can learn from them. And yes, we can then implement that into the Church in a discipleship-type community, discipleship-type relationship where we are showing why these things are true, even apart from Scripture. Well, this is really important stuff. We're going to take a short pause. We'll come back with Dr. Doug Potter, Assistant Professor of Apologetics and Theology at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And we'll return on Janet Meffer today right after this, so stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mefford. 
Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Doug Potter, Assistant Professor of Apologetics and Theology at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He has written a really great response to this recent Barna survey showing that nearly half of young adults who have some kind of ties to Christianity believe the church can't answer their questions or spiritual doubts. He's written a piece called Five Truths the Church Needs Today to Engage People's Questions at SES.edu. Dr. Potter, we were discussing some of the five truths that you've outlined and we had talked a little bit about using truth from philosophy. You also advocate those studying the truth from, of course, apologetics. What kinds of apologetics issues do you think we really ought to have a better mastery of, just as laymen? Yeah, uh, apologetics is really what uh, connects what we uh, have as far as truth from philosophy and connecting with the God of the Bible. And certainly we need to study the God of the Bible in terms of his nature and what he is like. But also in apologetics, uh, crucial with regards to the existence of God, uh, follows the issue of miracles, that indeed God can do miracles. If there is a God, then miracles are, are possible. Uh, and also the resurrection of Jesus, which is the hallmark of, of Christianity's claim with regards to the miraculous. Right. Uh, this involves showing that the New Testament is historically reliable. And also it can't stop there. It must go on and show that J- what Jesus, the Son of God, who's risen from the dead, taught about the Bible itself and that it is the Word of God. And this is the, this is the hallmark, the core of apologetics. Do you think that churches should do a better job of teaching apologetics just on a Sunday school level or a Bible study level? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm an advocate uh, that the, the most important place that apologetics should be done is in the home by the parents, and this should spill out into the church as well. Uh, the more people doing apologetics, talking about apologetics, formally teaching it, and even informally uh, using it uh, from the pulpit um, is extremely important and extremely vital. Um, this is where truth uh, can really be instilled in people. Uh, if it's done in the church, whether it's done informally or formally, it just needs to be done. Right. Oh, I agree. And the truth from the Bible, of course, is paramount when we go to the Word of God and we talk about what people need to know about the Bible itself. I, I find it very funny, actually, because most of the people who tend to crop up and say the Bible is full of contradictions, when you ask them for one, they can never produce it. They just kind of pick up whatever they learned from the New Atheist blog today and then they throw it at Christians. But what about going to the Bible itself? How would you do that? For example, if you had one of the surveyed young adults from this Barna research come and say, I have a question about, say, the Bible and science. How do the Bible, you know, how does the Bible relate to science and, and doesn't science contradict the Bible? How would you answer that question? 
Yeah, uh, well, because God has made uh, uh, the world, he's the creator of the world, and he inspired the Bible, uh, which is the Word of God, the two have to agree. So if there appears to be any conflict between them, it has to do with our interpretation or our understanding of it. We don't understand it very well. We haven't investigated either one, perhaps the scriptures in terms of uh, uh, discovering the historical, grammatical context of what is being said, uh, and in the light of what is known by science today, which can be changing um, and has uh, shown itself to be wrong about certain things. Uh, but ultimately, when these are perfectly understood, which in some cases may be impossible in this life, they are in perfect harmony with one another. So any conflict, any seeming disagreement between the Bible and science really lies with human beings. It doesn't lie with God, and it's not ultimately there, because ultimately they have to be harmonized, given God being the creator and the Bible being his word. No, very good. I love that you bring up the fact that Paul, writing to Timothy, stated these two things to emphasize what was important. One was the importance of beginning discipleship at the youngest age. So little kids need discipleship. And also when you mention it, secondly, that because it is the word of God, the Bible is the word of God. The power of scripture is valuable as second Timothy three says for instruction and correcting error and giving us examples on how to live righteously. Part of the thing that we use the word of God for, in other words, is to correct error. I mean, this is something I think that also can be a little bit neglected because we don't want to come across as being divisive. We don't want to be mean to people. So, you know, if we point out somebody's biblical error, we're being mean, but how important is it, do you think, to point out when there is error and departure from the faith? Oh, it's extremely important. And, and Paul did this in all of his letters. When you look at how he's writing the churches, especially Corinthians, uh, correcting a sexual immorality in the church and, and, and fights and difficulties uh, that take place in there, he does it in a loving context. He has such a relationship with the people in that church that they know Paul loves them and therefore, he is in a position to actually bring correction to their life in the way that they're living. And that's, that's the lesson for us. We have to know people in the church. We have to live life and experience life uh, with them. And they have to know that we care for them in terms of loving them, that we are willing their good. And in that type of a context, we can bring correction to their life. And it's greatly needed. And the, the passage that you cited there with Timothy is in, is in dealing with the issue of apostasy, of people walking away from the church, and Paul's warning uh, Timothy about this, that it is taking place and will take place, uh, and how to deal with it. And he appeals to uh, uh, starting people very young, as you mentioned, in regards to discipleship, uh, and also, yes, using the Word of God to bring correction to their life. Well, it makes me wonder, when you're looking at the young adults who were involved in this Barna survey, how much discipleship they were ever given when they were in the church. And was it personal, and was it corrective, as you've said discipleship needs to be? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think even myself personally, uh, one of the most important things is for, for a young person to have an adult, particularly not their parents, that is interested in them yeah. and uh, will meet with them and will get to know them. I had that in my life, and it was uh, growing up, because I grew up in the church, in an evangelical church, that was huge, that uh, here is a, a, a person 
that loves me, who's intellectual, uh, that believes and humbles himself before God. Um, regardless of what we talk about or what we did, it was just his example in terms of living life that was just impactful on me and kept me uh, uh, interested in the church and what was going on in the church. Yeah, I had the same thing, and it did make all the difference. Absolutely. That's really important. Another truth you mentioned is the truth from theology. When we look at systematic theology, it is important because you're covering all of the main doctrines of the faith and you're getting into some deeper concepts, but that also is something that every Christian needs to be aware of. How do you advocate the the average layman in church should dig into systematic theology? Where would you begin if you've never yet picked one one big systematic theology text up and you're doing it for the first time? Yeah. uh, In fact, I worked uh, with my mentor, Dr. Geiser, to get just such a book in people's hands. It's a popular survey of Bible doctrine where we go through uh, very straightforward and at a lay level these doctrines. Uh, show their their intercoherence with regards to one another and and also their their application to to thinking correctly about God and to living uh, correctly about God. So a lot of that uh, can certainly come from teachers in the church. Many pastors are very much very well trained in systematic theology and and can do that uh, 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 from the pulpit. Um, Sunday school teachers certainly can read books and get training uh, in a seminary, even like Southern Evangelical Seminary. We have many lay people that go through our seminary audit classes and can take systematic theology classes from a, a well-qualified professor in that area. So the, the opportunities to get trained in it are out there. Um, it, it, we need them to get trained, and then we need them to implement this into uh, discipleship communities, Sunday schools, and in the church environment. That is great. Wonderful. And finally, you also advocate studying the truth from evangelism. As you point out, experience can't be a test for truth, but the testimonies of those who have come to know Jesus Christ are really invaluable. How in the world should we use those testimonies to bring along some of these young people whose questions need to be answered? What's, what's some good points of interest that we can bring, bring to bear on this issue through the truth from evangelism? Yeah, I think it's important for people of all walks of life, all uh, economic, social background, uh, uh, positions that they have held, um, uh, people and, and other religions that come to the faith to be given a chance and opportunity to give their testimony in the community of the church uh, where they can tell about their, and their story and their journey uh, to faith in Christ. To do that publicly, to do that openly is such an encouragement to the rest of us. Um, it, it's just, you just glean a lot from that. Uh, you see their struggles. You're able to identify with them. And it just gives you encouragement with regards to, again, as you say, uh, our experience is the expression of truth. Um, even though that's not a test, that's not an apologetic in and of itself, but it is an expression of truth, and it's vitally important in the context of the church that people give, be given the opportunity to do that. Sure. You think of the man born blind, you know, who's this Jesus? I don't know, but I was blind and now I see. I mean, it's a little hard to argue with that, isn't it? That's right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, now when we're talking about discipleship, I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago that was so important when you talked about what a great mentor you had. And I mentioned I had the same experience. When you are seeing some of these laymen coming into, you know, auditing classes at Southern Seminary and learning more about these things, apologetics and learning more about systematic theology, learning more about the word of God. That would seem to be a wonderful jumping off point for everybody to mentor somebody and and do what we see Titus 2 talking about, the older teaching the younger. Do you think there needs to be a more formalized approach to that, the one-on-one discipleship that many Christians say is lacking in their churches? 
Yeah, I, I agree. A lot of times in our churches, and I don't know what your church is like, but uh, I'm in groups where everybody's the same age, uh, or at least we're close uh, with respect to age, and we don't have much interaction with uh, younger people in terms of formal sense or anything that's intended. If I want to uh, get to know a, a younger man and to help him out and to mentor him, I've got to take the effort to do that uh, versus something that's kind of a little bit more arranged uh, in the context of the church to facilitate that and making that happen. So it, I think it would be good for the church to, to maybe instigate programs and so forth that would connect the younger with the older in, in, in a setting and an environment that is uh, uh, able to bring them together and, and, and help them to, to be mentored. Well, absolutely. And, you know, as you said before, it has to start in the home, doesn't it? We as Christian parents have to absolutely make sure that we are discipling our children first and foremost. I can never forget to leave that out, you know, forget to make that point, because that's such a significant point that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. I uh, I hope I'm famous for saying that the most important people that be trained in Christian apologetics are the parents. Excellent. Because the parents... The parents will get what they are with regards to their children. They are the most uh, important influencers on their children, and, and they will get what they are. So if they're equipped in apologetics, their children will be drawn to Christian apologetics Love it. and get the answers that they need. That's so great. Dr. Doug Potter, you can read his piece at ses.edu. Thank you so much, Dr. Potter, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Great to have you with us. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 tells us two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That is just one of the many verses in the Bible that deal with the importance of friendship. But what if you have a hard time making or even keeping friends? It's really not as uncommon a situation as we might think, but there's both practical practical help and biblical wisdom that we can apply when we're dealing with the important issue of friendship. So we're going to talk about it today with Kim Weir. She's an author, Bible teacher, humor columnist, and radio talk show host on KSBJ Houston. And she joins us today to talk about her book, which is called The Art of Friendship, Creating and Keeping Relationships That Matter. Kim, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? Hey, Janet. Great. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk. Well, I really like this subject. I really do. And and maybe it's because I can relate so much to what you're talking about in your book. But you start off here by talking about how you became aware that you were lacking in female relationships and friendships. What happened to bring you to that realization of being concerned about this issue of friendship? You know, I think so many of us think that loneliness is just something other people experience. I literally just had lunch with a group of widows and said to them, no, no, me too. (laughs) Me too. I know what it's like to be lonely. Uh, One of the seasons for me was when we had been raising our middle school and high school kids. We have four kids, and we'd gotten so busy, Janet, with their lives, with, you know, being the home everybody could come to. Their people became our people so that we didn't have time for real people, you know, the friends that we used to have. And I looked up, you know, a few years into this and realized I, I don't know anybody, and I came to that realization when I 
found out that my dog actually had more friends than I do. <laughs> and that's a terrible thing to find. Uh, our, our precious dog that we love so much that all the neighbors walked with and, and loved in our neighborhood passed away. And, and I wrote about it in my newspaper column. And about a week later, I got fan mail for my dog. It wasn't oh my. for me. <laughs> I didn't even know the people who were grieving over my dog. Uh, and it just it made me realize, wow, I don't know people. I don't have friends anymore. I I am lonely, and I'm trying to figure out what to do about that. And in that process of trying to navigate my way back into relationships, I God had a lot to teach me. And you know, I'm just I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to pass that on. I think there is a second silent Me Too movement. And that is that all the people who are lonely, who internally are saying, Me Too, Me Too, yeah. but we don't talk about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've got kids now in college, high school, and middle school. And I think back when they were babies and toddlers, it seemed to yeah. be a lot easier to find friends. I mean, that's just been my experience. You know, yes. the friends that we already have exist, hopefully, and then you just maintain them through the years. But it was easier if you went to a mom's group, if you went to the park, if you went some places where there were other moms with babies and toddlers, there seemed to be a common response from young moms who were like, oh, good. Oh, good. There's another mom. Oh, let me talk. You know, and it, it seems like when your kids get older, it's harder because there's everybody gets busier. And then you have the added problem of everybody's gone. It's not like everybody's at home all the time. They're all off at their kids stuff or they're working or they're doing their thing. And and for a lot of people, I think this has been true for me. You say, well, where do you even begin to find a friend when you're having a hard time finding people who have time to get to know each other? I completely relate to your story because all of that was my story too. But how many of you are listening and that you're like, that's my story. We have these built-in clubs that we become part of, you know, in college, we're in with a lot of other people. You know, when we have babies, there's a whole club of people having babies. Yep. You know, when we are, take our kids to soccer practice, we're in that club. And so we have all these opportunities for relationships to form. And, and we can get to this place of, of realizing, wait, a lot of those natural opportunities are gone. Uh, and there are other reasons, too. I mean, there's so many people that relocate. Yes. And yes. You know, they left all those relationships. And it, it can feel like, well, nobody wants a friend. They already have friends. So there's all these reasons, you know, of widowhood, relocation, different seasons of life. Um, health struggles can sideline you. So, gosh, as, as many of us as there are, Janet, there are those stories. And some seasons are just harder than others. Very true. And relocation, that that is a huge thing. Yeah. I, I can say my best friends in the world are scattered all over the country. <laughs> you know? So mean. Yes. So mean of them to leave us. Isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, at some point I was the one who left. But yes, exactly. It's it's just interesting how you collect friends over the years. And then you say, I wish they all live nearby. But a lot of times they don't. Where do you even begin to make a friend? You know, once you got out of this realization, when you gained this realization, I should say, of the fact that you were lacking in female friendships, what did you do to try to rectify it? Well, I think it's interesting because one of the things that we have to be careful about, and, and I think I had gotten to that place, Janet, and so this would be one of the cautions, is we can actually sort of come to a truth with our loneliness. You know, okay, I, I'm in my habit. I do this. It's not awful. It's scary to make friends. You know, yeah. I have all these voices in my head that tell me that they don't want to be my friend. You know what? I'm okay. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And we come to this place where we first thing we have to do is decide, What's your motive? Are you willing to get out and, and make friends? For me, part of that, because I'd kind of gotten to that place where it was like, I'm okay, I'll be fine, um, was really listening to what God says about relationships. You know, we know that marriage can be a picture of Christ and His church, and we know that fathering can be a picture of who Father is. 
But one of the great overlooked doctrines of the Bible, Janet, is actually God's friendship. Mm. And Jesus calls himself our friend, but not just that. He actually sends us out with marching orders. And he says, I'm your friend. I'm transparent with you. I tell you stuff. I lay down my life for you. I went first. I chose you before you chose me. And then he says this, go do likewise. <laughs> go love each other like this. Right. That's a command. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually called by divine order to go be a friend because it shows the rest of the world what the friendship of God is like in the same way that marriage can show the rest of the world what the relationship of God to his church is like. And when you look at that and you realize, wait, this is purposeful. This isn't just extra. This isn't optional. God isn't calling me to do what's comfortable. I'm comfortable in my loneliness. He's saying, I've got a purpose for you, hmm. and you need to fulfill that purpose, Kim Weir, and get up and get out. So I think for me, realizing, I think one of the things I really learned most from Jesus' example is the philosophy called go first. Go first. Good. If I sit around and wait for somebody to knock on my door, Janet, I'm going to get lonelier by the day. Sure. He went first. We love him because he first loved us. And so for me, it was a matter of, in that particular circumstance, I had all these wedding showers that were coming up. Our son was about to get married. I was scared to death. I didn't have relationships anymore. Who in the world would I invite? They won't want to come. And yet through this, I heard God saying to me, be brave and go first. Go first. Send out the invitations. Give them the opportunity to come into your life. Uh, and, and I've followed that philosophy since then. Every time I feel alone or isolated or left out, instead of shrinking into myself, my answer to that is go first. And if I can't go first with that group and I really do feel like they don't want me there, that's probably in my head. But <laughs> even so, somebody else needs me to go first in their life. And so it could be an acquaintance at church. It could be an old friendship that needs to be rekindled. It could be a mother-in-law. It could be a daughter. There's so many ways for us to build friendships with so many varied kinds of people. It could be a coworker. But the responsibility is on us. And Jen, I don't know about you, but I like to be pursued. That's what won me. My husband won me by chasing me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that works great in romance. Doesn't work so great in friendship. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And it seems to be the case that if you have your eyes open and you are willing to go first, you will find people who are very responsive and sometimes yeah. not even where you imagine they would be. You know, I, I found that to often be the case that someone will just show a, a real interest in talking to me who I had kind of written off before. And it, it seems like some of it just comes down to plain old friendliness. Just be friendly, yeah. talk to people, start a conversation, say hello, ask them a question. And and I don't know why we don't think of those basic things sometimes when it's so obvious. We're so self-conscious. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we're too busy thinking about us. You know, it's funny that you say that they can come from anywhere. Uh, my, one of my ministry partners and, and really one of my best friends in the whole wide world for 30 years now Um we were just talking about this when she and her husband moved to town. He started coming to small group, but she was caught up with some ministry things and never came. We thought, oh, that's weird. When she finally did come, I'm like, yeah, no, we're not going to bond. <laughs> this is not going to be a relationship that's going to work for me. You know, I tell her all the time, you had sorority hair. You know, <laughs> it was, she said it was the 80s. <laughs> yep. But what's so funny is there was this moment when she finally came to a small group. And they were going through infertility, and she was heartbroken broken over a miscarriage. And even though she didn't know us very well, she just shared all of her emotions and her hurts. And that made her, just the vulnerability and the transparency of it just won my heart. And that's the power of being open with people. I love that. Kim, hang on just a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break. The Art of Friendship is Kim Weir's book. We'll be coming back to the conversation after this break. You're listening to Janet Mufford today. 
When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us. I'm great to be talking with Kim Weir. She's a Bible teacher, a radio host at KSBJ Houston, a humor columnist, and so much more. And she's out with a book called The Art of Friendship, Creating and Keeping Relationships That Matter. And I think that a whole lot of women, especially who are listening to us right now, Kim, can relate to this because I only say that because anecdotally, I hear a lot of women saying this to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know how to make friends and I miss you. Why do you live 500 miles away? You know, when you were talking before we went to the break about this woman, you had sort of written off. I could never be friends with her. And then you mentioned the issue of having a miscarriage and how that it seems like changed the picture then. Yeah, I, there's something winsome about transparency. But if you go back really to what Jesus said when he described himself as a friend, you know, he, he's trying to help us see that who is God does. He, he's actually a friend. He's the original friend. Yes. And, and Jesus says in John 15, he tells us several things about that. He says, look, I, I'm your friend. I call you a friend. I lay down my life for you. Um, he says, I, I tell you what my father says to me. This is how you know you're not a servant. I'm actually transparent with you. And then he also says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, which is the go first philosophy. But that part in there where he says, look, I tell you everything that my father told me. He lets us in on the secrets. That is part of building a friendship. And when she was able to do that, it started something. We shared something that she let me in a place that other people don't get to go. And transparency is one of those things that's just so key. 
And yet, Janet, it's so scary to trust yourself with other people. Yes, it is. And, you know, one of the problems, and I know you talk about it in your book, is social media. For good or ill, we're we're stuck with it for for at least the duration. But it, it is great, in a sense, because you can connect with all sorts of people you didn't know you still wanted to connect with from high school or whatever. <laughs> Some you do want to reconnect with. I'm, I'm joking, of course. But then you also have the flip side of that, which is I don't want just online friends. And mm-hmm. sometimes the friend who might have called you and asked you to go out for coffee is now just content to email you or text you. How do you mm-hmm. deal with those issues? The friendship that, that has a time investment that goes beyond the Internet. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, it gives us, first of all, as you kind of described, this false sense that we're in relationships when we're really not. Yes. And so it can be one of those things where it's like, I don't know why I feel so lonely. Look, I've got 572 friends, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and so that's part of it is to recognize that, no, this doesn't qualify. It doesn't qualify for the definition of friendship that God has given us in His Word. Transparency, being known, sharing, um, laying down your life. But one of the other aspects of how you can build a relationship, because that is a key question, right? Okay, fine. I know I need friendship. How do I do it? Right. So when Jesus is describing Himself as a friend who loves, and then He says, now you go love in the same way, He uses the word agape. He doesn't use any other love word. He uses agape, and it's a very distinct word that talks about this divine friend love that originates with God. And so when you're thinking, okay, well, what does that look like? Here's the good news. He gave us the cheat sheet. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, what we commonly think of as the love chapter, you hear it at weddings all the time. The word is not eros. It's not romantic love. It's agape. It's the exact same kind of love that Jesus said is his love for his friends that we're supposed to have for our friends. Now, what's cool about that, Janet, is it's all about action, which that is the one thing I do like about social media. It changed the word friend from a noun to something that we do. I'm going to friend you. (laughs) And to be a Jesus friend to other people is to friend them. So it's, it's, if you go into 1 Corinthians 13 and you plug in friend love, every place you see the word love, you actually have the guide to how to friend people. Go find people to be patient with, to be kind with. Uh, go find people that you wouldn't boast, you wouldn't be envious. Uh, go find people that you would not be self-seeking with. In other words, friendship should be about them first, then about you. God does this really cool thing. As you go and care about other people, invest in other people, meet other people's needs, ask them questions, try to help them be known, God boomerangs it and brings it back to you without it having to be your top priority. So there's this awesome guide in 1 Corinthians to get you started. That is great. I think that's really great, that it is something that you do and an action that you should take to become a friend. You know, when you think of so many different situations that come up concerning friendships, one of the other issues that strikes me, Kim, is there are a lot of women, I think, who can refer to friendships they've lost. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, maybe it was a fight, some kind of meltdown, some kind of misunderstanding. I lost a friend and I've seen it happen and I've been tempted in my own life to do this sometimes. I, I don't want to put myself out there again. I got burned. I trusted this person. I shared my heart with this woman. We were really close and then this all blew up and, it, it, you know, and then you might feel some guilt and maybe I didn't handle it. Well, how do you recover from that kind of a situation where you were burned in a friendship and you're really kind of tentative about taking the next step toward getting to know a new friend? Uh, well, one of the things that a broken friendship does is it makes us feel rejected. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it just, it leaves us feeling worthless and um, it can make us then not want to put ourselves out there for other people. 
And so one of the first things to recognize is, look, that friendship did not define you. Right. Um, it, it's not who you are. You are one who has been created in the image of God. You are infinitely valuable, and remember that. Uh, so that's the first thing is keep it in perspective. Um, the second thing to do is give yourself a little time to grieve over it. You lost a relationship. Relationships matter to God. He is in relationship. He is an us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were made in His image. He's created us to be us's, <laughs> yes. to be in relationships. And so when they end, it's painful. Grieve over it, regardless of how it ended. Let yourself feel the loss a little bit. Um, take a time to have that season sorrow, but don't stay there. Move from sorrow to thankfulness. Think of all of the ways that that relationship was an investment in you. And if it was hard lessons you learned from it, then give an opportunity to go before God and at least thank Him for that. Um, and then just be prayerful. Trust that God is going to use that broken relationship in her life and your life. And then ask the Lord not to let you wallow, but yes. to give you eyes at who you go first with next. That's great. That's really great advice. What about being a good friend? You know, that's the old thing our moms always told us. You know, you have to be a good friend to have a good friend. And this, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. How do you become a good friend to somebody else? What are some of the qualities that you ought to exhibit? You know, things like not always making it all about you every time you're with another woman, these sorts of things. But what are some other things that you would recommend? Hey, listen, if you want to really make and keep friends, stay away from X, Y, and Z and, and positively do A, B, and C. Yeah. Well, I think one of the first things is, again, I, I hate to say go back to the guy, but if you're looking at biblical friendship versus a worldview of, you know, uh, the world's version of friendship, then it goes back to what Jesus said. He said, look, what is a friend? A friend is somebody who lays down his life for another friend. And while we think about the cross and Jesus literally laying down his physical life, when you look up the, the actual translation of that word, it actually can also mean lay aside your life. In other words, who are you willing to make their priorities higher than yours? That's laying aside your life. The Bible is full of great examples of people who did that. Jonathan laid aside his right to be king because he valued David's calling more than himself. Right. Um, think about Ruth laying aside her option to live in her own land to go be a friend to Naomi and her brokenness. And so I think that's the first thing of having the perspective, as you said, it's not all about me. In fact, it's first about you and what you need, because that's the way God treats his friends. Um, I think the second thing is to, to really look at that list from 1 Corinthians 13 and plug in your name there against each relationship that you have. If you're, if you're in a relationship and you want it to be a good one, Kim is kind. Kim is not boastful with Susan. Hmm. Kim is not envious of Susan. Measure it. If there's someplace there that you really can't say that with authenticity, then that's a place to recalibrate to be good. a good friend. Good. And then the other thing is just communication, communication, communication. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and you also touch on the issue of you don't always have to have every friend that you make be a forever deep, intimate no. friend. I mean, we have many different, I know I have many different kinds of friends. You have friends yeah. you bump into once a month or friends who are parents of your kids' friends, things like that. And then you might have somebody you go very deep with. Maybe our expectations sometimes can be recalibrated so we don't expect every new woman who comes along who seems friendly is going to be my best friend next. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think as women, what do we want? We want a BFF. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we go through high school, junior high, looking for the BFF. We, we love Anna Green Gables because she has a BFF. Yes. Um, and that is, that is a recipe for disappointment. 
because if we put all of our eggs in one basket and we think, oh, my BFF's going to be everything, she's never going to hurt me, of course she's going to hurt you. We're people, and we have to be willing and prepared to forgive and love. But God didn't call us to one relationship. Um, and so having that mindset that, look, God's desire for us is community, that you're investing in lots of people. There's, I think maybe one way to think about it is this when you're thinking about even the kinds of relationships. Uh, you ought to have you ought to have some balanced relationships. People that you give and take, it's pretty pretty even. You know, you're both looking out for each other. Good. But you're gonna have other relationships where you're giving way more than you're getting. Kind of mentory, even if you're the same age. Yeah. And, and then you're gonna have relationships where you're getting more. Exactly. And those are gonna vary. But you can learn more. Point. Yeah, you can learn more in the book, The Art of Friendship. We're running out of time, unfortunately. But Kim Weir, it's been so delightful to have you here. And I can see why you make lots of friends, Kim. It was a blast to have you. <laughs> thanks for your time. All God right, bless. you take care. God bless you. Hey, thanks for joining us on Janet Mufford today, and we'll see you next time.